It only lasts a few minutes at sunrise around the winter solstice. Stephen McPhillamy was one of the lucky ones to get to view the ancient ritual from inside Ireland's Newgrange megalithic mound. For me, this was better than winning the lottery because you can't buy access to Newgrange on the winter solstice. Coming up, we'll hear what it's like to be one of the chosen few. Somewhere on Earth, every few years, the sun puts on a brief performance in the path of a total eclipse. David Barron travels the world to see them. But the fact is, it's not the two or three minutes. It's how those two or three minutes reverberate for the rest of my life. And Terry Tempest-Williams explains why she feels America's national parks and wilderness areas need to be protected from drilling, mining, and development. We are not the only species who lives and breathes and loves and grieves on this planet. And I think we forget that in our arrogance and ignorance. Stay with us. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Terry Tempest-Williams tells us about the crossroads America's facing after celebrating the centennial of America's best idea, our national parks. And we'll find out why the winter solstice is special at Ireland's Newgrange from a man who got picked to actually go inside its ancient burial chamber. That's coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves. The excitement over the big solar eclipse that crossed the United States in August 2017 created a tourist boom stretching from Oregon to South Carolina. A similar eclipse in 1878 brought many of the country's leading scientists to the Wild West to try to capture the rare event with the latest technology of the time. Journalist David Barron is a self-confessed umbrophile who brings the excitement of July 1878 to life in his book, American Eclipse. David, thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure, Rick. Thanks for having me. So you call yourself an incurable umbrophile. What's an umbrophile, and, and how does that happen that you'd become an incurable one? So an umbrophile, that's a fancy word for an eclipse chaser. And uh, incurable is right. There are many of us who, when we see our first total solar eclipse, which I have to say is fundamentally different from a partial solar eclipse, a total solar eclipse is a rare and extraordinarily awe-inspiring experience that for many people who see one, they decide one's not enough and they become addicts. So I am an eclipse-chasing addict. Ah, right. Now, describe your first total eclipse. What was that like? That was in 1998 in Aruba, and I had gone to Aruba in February of that year because I knew there was going to be a total eclipse there. And as a science journalist, I thought it would be interesting to see, but I was not prepared for what an overwhelmingly emotional and, I dare say, spiritual experience it was to have the sun go away in the middle of the afternoon and to stare up into a sky I had never seen before. Hmm. It was just spectacular. Now, did you have a similar experience uh, just in 2017, last August, when we had our eclipse? Oh, I did. I was in Jackson, Wyoming, on a mountaintop over 10,000 feet high, and the sky was cloudless. It was just perfect. And I was up there with, I had a dozen family mm. members with me, uh, most of whom had never seen a total eclipse before. Mm. And it was just, it was a moving experience and a real bonding experience, something we will be talking about for the rest of our lives. There's probably two kinds of uh, eclipse watchers, those who have experienced the total eclipse before and those who are in for their, their big surprise. I can tell you what you will see during a total eclipse, how you will mm -hmm. see a black hole in the sky where the sun is supposed to be, and around it, this beautiful wreath-like eminence. It's the solar corona, the sun's outer atmosphere. And I, you know, you can see pictures of it, but it still doesn't prepare you for just the raw 
emotion of it. It's a visceral experience that many people are left crying, shouting with joy, and changed forever. You've been into this for decades now. How many eclipses have you chased, and how many have you seen? In August 2017, that was my sixth total eclipse, Hmm. and the first one I've gotten to see in my own country. So it was Hmm. really nice having chased them around the world to places like Indonesia and Australia and the, the Faroe Islands up in the North Atlantic to have one come to within driving distance of my home in Boulder, Colorado. Mm. Uh, it was wonderful now to have one come to the United States. Would you even bother to travel to see a partial eclipse? No. <laughs> <laughs> Once you've seen a, par- a total. A, right. I tell you, a partial eclipse is interesting. And what, <laughs> so... All of North America on August 21st, 2017, got to see at least a partial eclipse. And a partial eclipse can be great fun. And a 95% partial eclipse can be tremendous fun. But it is still nothing, nothing compared with the awe-inspiring sight of totality. It's only in that narrow path where the moon's shadow falls, where it actually gets dark in the middle of the day, and you can look up in the sky with the naked eye and look toward the sun safely. Many more people have seen partial than total. You've seen total. You know the magic. What happens? There's a change in the atmosphere. The birds go crazy. Walk us through the whole experience. A total eclipse begins as a partial eclipse, as the moon very slowly makes its way in front of the sun. And so it takes more than an hour for the moon to pass from the very edge of the sun to the period when it becomes total. And for most of that time you notice nothing unusual in the environment. So if you're wearing eclipse glasses with really dark lenses, you can look up and see the sun turn into a crescent. And it's all very interesting. But again, if you hadn't known what was going on overhead, you would not notice anything. It's Mm. only about 10 minutes before the total eclipse that strange things start to happen. The temperature drops. Shadows become very strange. As the sun shrinks to essentially a point in the sky, shadows become very sharp. It looks like someone has turned up the contrast knob on TV. Hmm. Colors start to look off. And then about that last minute before the onset of the total eclipse, that's when it starts to get dark and very rapidly. But it's a weird kind of dark because... You know, what's up in the sky is still very bright. It's just not very much of the sun that's left. So it's it's like someone has turned down the dimmer switch on Hmm. a light bulb. And it really can feel as if something's wrong with your head, as if you're losing your eyesight. And then all of a sudden, it goes dark. Not dark like midnight, but dark like twilight. And at that point, you take off the eclipse glasses and you look up in the sky and you feel like... You have left the Earth, and you are standing on some other planet. Because I tell you, it's a sky you've never seen before. The colors are different. You've got twilight overhead, and on the horizon all around you, it's sunset. So you have a 360-degree sunset. It's orange around you. It's sort of purple-gray overhead. And the sun, what you see, the solar corona, is the most spectacular thing you've ever seen in the sky. And I tell you, pictures don't do it justice because... It's not just some halo around the black moon. It's got texture and shape. It's, it looks like it's made out of strands of silk, and it just shimmers out there in space. And I tell you, it's it sounds just... sounds like you're smoking It's like a something. vision. Absolutely. You know, if I'm thinking of it, the moon is basically eclipsing the sun from our view, and the moon is orbiting sometimes closer to the Earth and sometimes farther away from the Earth. Does the relative size of the moon compared to the size of the sun from our vantage point 
change and make different eclipses different, or is it always covering up more than enough of the sun so it's basically an eclipse is an eclipse? No, that's an excellent question. Um, each eclipse is different. So first of all, when the, when the moon is closer to us and therefore appears larger in the sky, it will take longer to pass in front of the sun. So some total eclipses are longer than others. Hmm. The one in August of 2017, the longest duration was just over 2 minutes 40 seconds. Some can last over 7 minutes. That's about the maximum. Okay. And so in that case, the moon will be very close to us. And in your book, American Eclipse, you talk about how there's a curtain of darkness racing at you at 1,400 miles per hour. Yes. So if I could have been anywhere for the total eclipse in 1878, it would have been on top of Pikes Peak in Colorado. And as I describe in my book, the folks up there had just a breathtaking view. They were able to look to the northwest up that path of totality. They knew that that's where the moon's shadow would be coming in from. And they could see it as this palpable curtain of black from outer space coming down into the Earth's atmosphere, racing toward them at lightning speed, swallowing the mountains as it came in. Science correspondent David Barron has written American Eclipse to describe the nation's epic race to catch the shadow of the moon in 1878. His book includes photos from that historic summer and the stories of those who took part, including luminaries like Thomas Edison. His website is American-Eclipse.com. David, your book features this eclipse of 1878. It's amazing to me that back then, people could actually anticipate it. They had the gear. They had the wherewithal to travel and be all set up and then celebrate this thing. You talk about government eclipse camps where they built temporary structures and leading scientists would gather together. What's the big deal about the eclipse of 1878 in the United States and in the years that followed? Yeah, well, there were several things really important about that eclipse in 1878. So first of all, during the 19th century, total eclipses were incredibly important to science. Astronomers were just starting to unravel the mysteries of the sun, and there were certain studies that they could do only during a total eclipse, which they knew how to predict them at that time. But again, a total eclipse occurs about once every 18 months, somewhere on the planet, usually someplace very hard to get to. But uh, astronomers would put together these elaborate expeditions off to India or North Africa, set up their telescopes in the path of the moon's shadow, all for what would last like just three minutes. And if a cloud strayed by at the wrong time, the whole exercise would Hmm. be ruined. But they were that important. So in 1878, when a total eclipse they knew would cross the American West, an area that was now accessible by railroad and where the skies had a pretty good odds of being clear, dozens of the era's great scientists came out to Wyoming and Colorado and Texas and set up their observatories and prayed for clear skies. And this included some folks who were very prominent at the time and some names known today, most notably Thomas Edison. Thomas Edison in 1878 31 years old, was an eclipse chaser. He came out to Wyoming to do an experiment and to, in essence, be an astronomer for all of three minutes. Did they know about the danger of looking at it? Did they have some way to shield their eyes, or did they wait until it was total, or did they just burn their retinas out? They were very careful. They knew to be careful. And it's interesting how eclipse chasing in 1878 was almost identical to the way it is today. Hmm. Now, they didn't have the same fancy eclipse glasses we have today with mylar lenses, But they would take pieces of glass and smoke them over flames or take pieces of very dark colored glass, 
to look at the partial phases of the eclipse. We would not consider that safe by today's standards, Mm -hmm. but I have not found any examples of people going blind from that. But also just to answer fully your, your previous question about the importance of the 1878 eclipse, it was critically important for America because at that time, the United States did not have a very good reputation in the sciences. Europe really looked down their noses at us and didn't consider us a very intellectual nation. But the eclipse of 1878 was this scientific event that the nation really rallied around, sort of like the moon landing Hmm. in the 1960s. It was something that got the American public excited, that got um, the American government excited, and helped spur America's rise toward really challenging Europe as a scientific power, and a few decades later, surpassing Europe as the clear leader in science in the world. We'll learn about the mysteries of the winter solstice at Ireland's Newgrange in just a bit. And Terry Tempest-Williams shares her love for America's national parks. Tell us how you experienced the big eclipse in August of 2017 at 877-333-RIC. There's more with the author of American Eclipse, David Barron, and your calls in just a minute on Travel with Rick Steves. David Barron wrote American Eclipse to describe the frenzy that accompanied the total solar eclipse in the American West in 1878. He's telling us why, once you've experienced one at full totality, you'll find a way to make an eclipse more than just a -a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Mike is calling in from Fresno in California. Hey, Mike. Hi, Rick. How are you? Great. Do you have a comment about eclipses for David Barron? Uh, Yes, uh, I'd like to say that I completely agree about the differences between the total eclipse. We saw a partial eclipse here about five years ago. I took my daughter, uh, who was uh, in elementary school, and that was very interesting. However, uh, this year um, I decided to attend the total eclipse, which was about 600 miles away from us. And I was debating back and forth whether uh, I should make the trip. Then uh, a friend of ours who uh, works with NASA uh, told us that he was going to take his daughter. He was going to fly from Los Angeles to Boise. And I said, well, uh, maybe I should think about uh, taking my daughter to see this. This is probably close to a -a once-in-a-lifetime experience for her. So uh, Sunday, the day before the eclipse, uh, left very early in the morning. And it took uh, about 12 hours to drive the uh, 600 miles from Fresno. We went close to Madras, uh, Oregon, and uh, we ended up uh, camping in someone's front yard. The nearby town of uh, Madras, uh, I had heard, had grown from its normal population of 7,000 to over 100,000 that weekend. Okay, so was it worth it? Was it worth all that driving and all that expense for a couple minutes of totality? (laughs) It completely was. I mean, this is really something that uh, my daughter was a little bit hesitant about going, and then she complained about the long drive, and on the way back, it took 22 hours to get back because Hmm. it took 10 hours to travel about 90 miles after we left. Okay, I'm uh, so practical, Mike. I'm so practical. How could it be worth driving 30 hours for this totality? David was talking about it's like almost a religious experience. You're seeing God through that black hole. What is it about totality for you? Uh, For me, it was so much different. I mean, the darkness, and then being amongst other people. There were about 30 other people there, and being in this crowd, and we were all 
just kind of experiencing something that we, we just could not imagine. And I, we're just trying to think how people before could have seen this, mm. you know, who weren't probably prepared for this in the mm. past, hundreds of years ago, or even farther past. And seeing it get so dark so quickly, you know, getting cooler, but the, just the last few seconds, and actually totality itself, we just weren't prepared for that. You know, it just was so much more than we could have imagined. Was it silence, or were people screaming, or what was it like? People were screaming. <laughs> people were screaming, they were shouting, shouting obscenities, <laughs> because it was just an amazing experience. It was Whoa. just something that I think everybody was prepared for, but unprepared for in terms of how much a change it was from normal daylight. And there's one in 2019 in South America, right? Are you going to head exactly. for that Exactly, yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I'm already planning for this. I've seen the first one, and then there's one back again in the United States in 2024, okay. and I'll leave it up to my daughter to, uh, to make plans. Maybe I'll see you there. Thanks for the call, Mike. Okay. Take care. Thank you. Ira's calling in from Berkeley, California. Ira, what's your uh, eclipse experience? Um, we um, went to Glendo, Wyoming. I've seen a whole bunch of partials, solars, and total lunar eclipses, but there's nothing like the total eclipse. It was a hole in the sky. It was a silver reef around the moon, and the whole thing was alive with the solar flares and the corona. It was just extraordinary. This is one of those events that was so clear that I wanted to make memories rather than buy things. Mm. And uh, that's really what you do in, in all your work with helping people travel. And I, I wanted to make that comment and thank you for it. Well, thank you, Ira. I think we're kind of inspiring people along those lines when we think about doing something as crazy as driving for hours to spend two minutes under a total eclipse. But it certainly is a memory that can never be taken away from you. You've shared it with loved ones. And those are the things that uh, I've, I've never talked to anybody who regretted going to all the trouble to see a total eclipse. Well, I think that's right. And Jeff Bezos was asked a long time ago, why did he start Amazon? And he, he came up with something called the regret minimization framework. And he imagined he was 80 years old, looking back on his life, and he realized if he didn't do it, he wished he had. Mm-hmm. And so, so much of the decisions I make and the mm-hmm. trips that we've taken over the past few years are basically you're realizing to a certain degree my biological clock is ticking. Mm-hmm. And maybe you've another 10 or 15 or 20 more years of active travel. Mm-hmm. So the time to do it is now so we don't look back and say, gee, we could have and we didn't. Amen. And, uh, you know, when I'm, when I'm confronted with an opportunity, my rule lately, I don't have a name for it like Jeff Bezos, but it's just if the question is yes or no, the answer is yes. Let's just do it, you know. Generally, you don't regret it. Ira, thanks so much for your call and, and that beautiful idea. Thank you so much, Rick. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with David Barron. His book is American Eclipse, a nation's epic race to catch the shadow of the moon and win the glory of the world. David, that all goes back to the 1878 pivotal sort of uh, leap as America got its act together with technology and science and so on. We've just talked to a few people that have sort of been good witnesses to the excitement and, and the worthwhileness of checking out a total eclipse you talk about how to understand eclipse chasers, it helps to be one. There's a sort of a conviviality, a collegiality, a community of eclipse watchers. What are your thoughts when you hear Ira and Mike calling in with their experiences? It warms my heart to hear what they had to say. And I completely agree with them that uh, 
the total eclipse is so brief. People will ask me, why would you travel to the other side of the world for something that lasts two or three minutes? But the fact is, it's not the two or three minutes. It's how those two or three minutes reverberate for the rest of my life. Hmm. I can't tell you how often I think about that eclipse I saw, particularly in Aruba, but all of the ones I've seen stand out as sort of these milestones in my life, these moments I remember, the people I was with, the places I went, the feelings I had. It's not just about that momentary experience. It's how that experience changes the rest of my life. And, you know, you are you are all about travel. I tell you, going to see a total eclipse is the closest you will ever get to space travel. It really is like standing on some alien world and then being thrust back to Earth at the end of the total eclipse. And so if you want to go visit another planet and you probably aren't going to have time to go to Mars, make sure you go see a total eclipse. <laughs> you are so convincing. David, I really enjoyed that, that whole idea of the government eclipse camp. And I could just imagine these people in 1878 building these wooden structures and setting up their newfangled telescopes. What were some of the personalities that came out in your research about chasing that eclipse of 1878? And what sort of insight did that give you about what was going on in America during that generation? I think that the eclipse of 1878 is, is in some ways a window into what was going on in American society at that time. Uh, how society was changing. And, and one of my favorite characters in the book, and of course, these are all real people, was uh, an astronomer from Vassar College, which had just recently been founded as an all-women's college. And the astronomer there was Mariah Mitchell. She was by far the most famous female scientist in America in the 19th century at a time when, of course, there were very few women who were working in science. And she put together in 1878 an all-female eclipse expedition to Denver, Colorado, which was, of course, a scientific expedition, but it was more than that. It really was a bit of political theater. It was a chance to show America in a very public way that women could be scientists. And so, um, you know, Mariah Mitchell was out there with her all-female band, but there were other scientists from the University of Michigan and Princeton and Yale, who um, had their own things they were trying to prove. Um, it was just an amazing cast of characters. So a lot of uh, what distinguishes America in the 20th century was percolating in the late 19th century, and the eclipse of 1878 helped kickstart all of that. Absolutely. Mariah Mitchell really did help open the doors of science to women, and she got such praise from the American press. This was at a time when Women's rights women were often just harshly ridiculed mm -hmm. as harpies in the press. I mean, the American public, certainly the patriarchy, did not like these women standing up for their rights. Mm -hmm. But Mariah Mitchell, she got really nothing but respect. And she, what she did in 1878 and what she did over the course of her career really did make way for women to become a significant part of science in the decades to follow and certainly today, of course. Incurable Umbrophile David Barron is the author of American Eclipse. His book describes the breakthroughs a total solar eclipse in the summer of 1878 provided for America's scientific community. David's website is American-Eclipse.com. So, David, you are an incurable umbrophile, somebody who just can't stop chasing eclipses. What's up next? Are there eclipses actually on the schedule? Well, that's one of the things I like about total eclipses is they're completely predictable. I mean, I know when to the date, in fact, to the second, 
when total eclipses will occur over the coming decades. And so I, I know where I will be. The next two total solar eclipses will occur in July of 2019 and December of 2020. And both of those just happen to be in South America. They will cross Chile and Argentina. And then after that, we've got ones in Antarctica, in Indonesia. But the, the next one that probably most of your listeners will be interested in is April 8th of 2024, because that is the next total solar eclipse that will visit the uh, United States. So again, it's a Monday. Put in for your holiday time now. The path of the total eclipse will go from Texas up to Maine, and it will cross some major cities, Dallas, uh, Indianapolis, Cleveland, Buffalo, Burlington, Vermont. They are all lucky to be in the path where it will be total. All right. Well, we'll talk to you then. (laughs) (laughs) You got it. David Barron, author of American Eclipse. Thanks so much. I've learned a lot, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners have too. Best wishes, and uh, maybe I'll see you at the next total eclipse. That sounds good. Thank you, Rick. The sun is once again the star attraction, if you'll pardon the pun, every winter solstice at Newgrange in Ireland's Boyne Valley. It's a burial mound created thousands of years ago during the Stone Age. It was designed to allow the angle of the sunrise on the winter solstice to enter as a shaft of light right into its burial chamber. Stephen McPhillamy takes dozens of tour groups to Newgrange every year. Last winter, he was selected to be one of a handful of people who actually got to go inside the burial chamber on the morning of the winter solstice. Stephen's here to tell us what happened. Thanks, Rick. Explain to us what Newgrange is, actually. I mean, I gave a little quick overview there, but what's the story about this amazing site that's just about an hour outside of Dublin? In my opinion, it's the blockbuster site in Ireland. It's 5,000 years old. We like to always remind visitors that it's even older than the pyramids and older than Stonehenge. It's one hour from Dublin, and it's this glorious big mound of earth and rock on top of a hill that stands out, and it's got this beautiful white front. You can spot it from two miles away as you're approaching it. Just a very popular visitor attraction, but it's 5,000 years old. Our ancient ancestors used to believe that on the morning of the winter solstice, as the sun would go in, this central chamber was always in darkness, you see. And then when the sun would go in, a laser beam of light would go up the central chamber and illuminate it. And there's these big stone urns inside that used to contain the ashes of our dead, cremated ancestors. And as the sun would go back down the chamber, we believed, our ancestors believed, that the sun would take the souls of our ancestors to the next world with them. So 5,000 years ago, this was designed knowing there'd just be a few minutes out of the year when the ray of sun would come in, illuminate the burial chamber, and as it crept in, it brought access to eternal life, and then as it crept away, it took the souls of those. Would that just be any Sean or Patty, or would that be actually leaders or kings or something like this? Because 5,000 years ago in Ireland, we have no records or any written records of what you can only guess, but you'd imagine that anybody who got to be buried inside Newgrange must have been a pretty prominent chieftain or king or queen of a spiritual leader. The sun moves on then, of course, and it returns to darkness inside for 365 days of the year. And this has been going on for 5,000 years. So it's only eight minutes. There's only eight minute window of opportunity for it to be lit inside. But now if it doesn't happen, it's because it's cloudy. And in Ireland, that's more likely than not. Exactly. So on the day that I went there during the lottery. So first of all, there's actually a lottery and tell us what that is. Yeah. So every year around 40,000 people apply. And when you go to visit the burial chamber at Newgrange, the visitor center there, there's a nice little box and it says, <laughs> if you wish to be picked to come here on the winter solstice, write your name down and put it in the box. So I've been to Newgrange with tours probably 50 times that I've applied a lot and I never, ever expected to win. <laughs> but on this occasion, uh, my bus driver, Dennis McArdle, I'll have just to give a shout out to him. 
he asked me what I was doing when I was filling out the form. I said, I'm filling in the form to win the, the lottery to get to Newgrange. And I said, you should do it as well. I suggest you apply as well. So he applied. It was actually him that won. Yeah. So he invited me to come along because he had never heard of it so before. So you get to take your favorite buddy with you. Two people get to go and only 20 people get selected to be inside out and of 40,000. 40,000. So you've got a lucky bus driver. Yeah. And um, for me, like people sometimes say, oh, you should have played the lottery that week. Yeah. And for me, this was better than winning the lottery because you can't buy access to Newgrange on the winter solstice. That was priceless. For me, it's absolutely So you were, you were there with 20 people. 20 people inside. They switch off the lights and it's complete darkness. You can't see a thing. And there's 20 voices there sort of whispering and nervously saying this and that. And there's an archaeologist there and she's explaining what's about to happen. And there's a really dramatic buildup. And she's saying, you know, any minute now, at two minutes to nine, the sun is going to come up and it's going to illuminate and we will see each other's faces because there will be this brilliant golden light. She said, nobody look at your watches. No one turn on any phones. So we didn't know what time was, but not, nothing actually was happening. We could see the light come in at the bottom of the chamber a little bit. We're standing in the central chamber, which is about 10 metres from the door. Eventually, I suggested um, that the time had passed, and she took a look at her watch, and the time had passed. Nothing actually happened that morning because it was too cloudy. <laughs> so <laughs> you won the lottery, and you got up early, and you're there with 20 people in the middle of this big 5,000-year-old stone mound, and nothing happened. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Stephen McPhillamy about his experience celebrating the winter solstice, whether it's sunny or not, at Newgrange. Nothing happened, but there was people there from Mexico. There was two people there from the Netherlands. Imagine traveling all the way from Mexico to that chamber and nothing happened. But (laughs) the point is, people said to me, were you disappointed? And I just did not feel any sense of disappointment whatsoever because it just felt... It just almost felt perfect because that's what may have happened 5,000 years ago. Yeah. You can't predict how nature's going to be. Right. And uh, I just really felt part of something enormous. And it caused you to, yeah, to respect what happened 5,000 years ago. We have no idea how sophisticated these people are. We only guess what they were building and what they were thinking and why. Yeah, and I like to put myself in the shoes of my ancient Irish ancestors and think, how would they have felt that day when the people left the central chamber and said to the people outside, the gods did not speak to us. The, the universe has not yeah. spoken to us this year. <laughs> so you'll have to wait. Maybe there's a lesson in that. Oh, wise one, be patient. I took some crystals with me because I have a friend who's a druid back in Ireland and she was really overjoyed for me that I got selected and she said, I have one request and she said, would you take some crystals into the chamber for me? To charge them up? To get them charged up and energized with the sun. So I wasn't skeptical that the sun was going to come in but I just didn't want to take a chance so I left them down at the front door so that they definitely would get hit with the sunshine. So I had a huge, big, long obelisk of crystal, of quartz, and uh, I had about 10 other little small pieces and they were energized and blessed. And I actually have one to present to you just here. You got one? So this is a piece of crystal, rose. And this has been energized by the sun at Newgrange. In Newgrange. As has been going on for 5,000 years. Yes. I will take this and I will put it in my top drawer and I will probably forget it. That's okay, but just before you do that, just uh, hold it, and and it's all about intention. Just It's intention. Okay, I will hold yeah, this. It may bring you some very positive energy. Stephen McPhillamy, this is something I'm thankful for because American travelers can go to Newgrange, one hour north of Dublin now. They can make reservations online, and they can go to visit this amazing edifice almost any day of the year without winning the lottery. Absolutely, and they have a little light system that replicates the... They do. The winter solstice so you anyway. Could so use your it's it's intention. Yeah, Stephen McPhillamy, it's always good to talk to you and uh, connect a little bit with the uh, beautiful and evocative Emerald Isle. Thanks, Rick.
As in Ireland, there are burial mounds and landscapes across North America that can talk to us about who we are and who came before us. Up next, Terry Tempest-Williams tells us about the insights she's acquired in America's national parks and the price we'll pay if we fail to preserve and protect them. Stay with us. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Shalom, shalom. I'm Martin Fletcher in Tel Aviv, and I'm Mr. Vevim Rick Steves. That was Hebrew for I'm Martin Fletcher in Tel Aviv, and I'm traveling with Rick Steves. Koimli Martin Fletcher in Tel Aviv, and I'm Mr. Vevim Rick Steves. She's been called a poet, a modern-day saint, and a citizen writer for her conscientious appeals to our better nature as Americans. Terry Tempest-Williams distills the lessons of her journeys from Maine to Alaska, the San Joaquin Valley to the Gulf Shore, in her book called The Hour of Land, a personal topography of America's national parks. She writes about some of the many ways the parks serve as breathing spaces and why they deserve to be protected as sacred lands. Terry, welcome back. Thank you, Rick. It's so great to be with you again. What is the purpose in your, in your mind of our National Park Service? I believe that our national parks are breathing spaces in a society increasingly holding its breath. And I really believe, Rick, that it isn't the job of just environmentalists to protect these public lands, but really the privilege of all Americans. One of the things I think we forget is that our national parks and monuments are really the open space of democracy. It's where our identities as a people reside. It's where we have charted and honored and celebrate the American psyche, if you will, Mm -hmm. our character in all its diversity. So I think this idea of public lands, national parks, belonging to all of us is a really key concept. Terry, when you talk about that, and then we think of the title of your book, The Hour of Land. What does the hour of land mean in regards to what you just said? I believe this is the hour of land. I think we're in a bottleneck, not just in the United States and North America, but around the planet, given the severity of climate change. You know, thinking about biologists such as E.O. Wilson saying that if we are to thrive and flourish as a species, half of the planet must be protected as open space. Hmm. We are not the only species who lives and breathes and loves and grieves on this planet. And I think we forget that Hmm. in our arrogance and ignorance. You know, every time I go to a national park, I meet the miraculous. And I will never forget, Brooke and I were celebrating our 40th wedding anniversary, which is in itself miraculous. We went to Yellowstone. We went to the Lamar Valley. It's in the northern part of, of Yellowstone, America's first national park. It was just before dawn. We could see the mist rising from the Lamar River. Uh, The first glint of light appeared, and we saw this mound of bones and recognized it as a carcass, a bison carcass. There were two coyotes, three bald eagles, and a flurry of ravens licking bones. A park ranger came up to us and said, told us the backstory that this was another bison. She was in the process of giving birth the day before, a stillborn. She wasn't going to survive. A pack of wolves came. It was a, an immediate violent death, predator prey. And this was what we were witnessing, scavengers licking bones. The hackles on the coyotes rose, the eagles flew, the ravens disappeared, and out from the forest walked this beautiful white, alpha male wolf. 
He entered the cavern of bones. From our perspective, we could see his belly swell. Maybe a half an hour went by. He pulled out and disappeared as quickly as he had arrived. Brooke and I went on with our day, so struck by what we had just witnessed. We came back at twilight, hoping for a chance to see this wolf again. Instead, we noticed about a quarter of a mile away from the mother bison's body, three, four hundred bison grazing, last light of day. Suddenly we saw this line, single file, evenly spaced, seven bison walking toward the mother bison, the mother body. They circled her once, they circled her twice. They pulled in, nudged her, sniffed her body, pawed the ground beneath her, and lowered their heads. They circled her one more time and went back as they had come, single file, evenly spaced, save one lone bull who stayed with her. That's what I'm talking about, Rick. We always hear numbers about how many millions of people are going to the parks and how many traffic jams there are waiting to get in. What are some more tips about how we can be more observant? I think it's about slowing down, looking at the relationships to other, other species, other people, other landscapes, where we remember what it means to be human. We so often think, oh, when we have some free time, you know, let's go to Europe or let's go to Asia or South America, when in fact, we have whole nations in our own, Mm. nations of bison, birds, histories. That's what our national parks give us. And I have to say, Rick, they are threatened. And when you think that 300 million of us visit our national parks each year, the question must be asked, you know, what is our responsibility to keep the open space of democracy open? You talk about the open space and uh, we're a country that's holding our breath and this is a place to breathe. What do you mean by we're not breathing? What do you mean by we need space? I don't know about you, but half the time I feel like my shoulders are up to my ears. You know, I am i can hardly believe the world we're living in right now. And mm-hmm. I keep asking our, myself, you know, who are we becoming? And where is our, our decency, our sense of humility, reverence? And so I do think about, you know, what is the relevancy of our national parks in the 21st century? And can they bring us to a United States of humility? Mm. Again, that we are not the only species that lives and loves and breathes on the planet. Terry Tempest Williams describes her experiences at a dozen of her favorite national parks and monuments in The Hour of Land, a personal topography of America's national parks. It's now out in paperback. Terry and her husband live near Arches National Park in Utah. Terry's recently been a visiting professor of environmental studies at Dartmouth College. And right now, she's serving as writer-in-residence at the Harvard Divinity School to examine the spiritual implications of climate change. You can listen to Terry's previous appearances on Travel with Rick Steves. Look for the details in this week's show notes at ricksteves.com radio. Terry, you know, I love this idea that there's a whole world waiting to be appreciated, and I love the way you talk about going to nature to sense people that were here long before us. That was at Effigy Mounts, wasn't it? Yeah, that was a great surprise to me. You know, being a Westerner, you... You get very arrogant about your landscapes, thinking Grand Tetons, Grand Canyon, you know, Canyonlands, Yosemite. 
Here is Effigy Mounds, this beautiful wooded area on the banks of the Great Mississippi River. Mounds in the shape of bears, wolves, snakes, a 225-foot wingspan of a falcon. Who were these people? The ancient ones, relatives of the Ho-Chunk people. The questions that it asked, the reverence that it inspired, it really was, when I think of our national parks, that shifted something for me, that it isn't just wild Western landscapes, but cultural sites, worshipped through time, Mm -hmm. that now because of modernity and agriculture, you know, where these great mounds once were, cornfields stand. It was deeply moving to me. It's interesting. Of course, naturalists really love and admire John Muir. He recognized the value of parks so long ago, 100 years ago. If you were able to walk with John Muir right now through a park, what would you show him that he probably never saw when he was so into nature 100 years ago? Well, I think I would show him the John Muir Trail, where it is a steady stream of humanity. Um, Mm. I think he would be shocked. (laughs) I would show him in Canyonlands National Park in Utah that this is one of 40 national parks that are now slated for oil and gas development on its boundaries. And then I would imagine sitting in Gates of the Arctic where stillness is still the order of the day and maybe we would be watching musk oxen or the migrating caribou and I would love him to tell me what that was like Mm. in the midst of a snowstorm when he was hanging on to the tops of of a swaying pine tree. You, you write about the beauty of solitude. And in fact, you had to, I think you had to fly into the gates of the Arctic National Park. And maybe now it's a little tougher to find that solitude. But solitude really is a valuable experience that a lot of people either avoid or are afraid of or, or never even consider. You know, I think of a day years ago in the Everglades of just kind of stooping down in, in the shimmering sawgrass looking at an Everglades kite. And I was the only one there, this shimmering bird that I felt like I was almost watching the spirit of the bird than the bird itself. Mm. It's an endangered species. And I thought, I'm so grateful for the the foresight of men and women before us mm. and people in Congress who knew what we would need for the future. I think about Yosemite that was created in the midst of the Civil War by Abraham Lincoln, who knew he would never see the big trees in the Mariposa Grove or the Yosemite Valley, but through photographs and the writings of those who had, he protected that land. Mm. And now that land is protecting us, even as a nation still divided. You know, it's unfortunate that all of these values of nature and and wilderness that you recognize can't be put on a spreadsheet in a dollar and cents term. Because when you think like an accountant... And when you measure things by, by spreadsheets, nature loses and, uh, you know, fracking wins. You know, no amount of money is a substitute for beauty. No amount of political power can be matched by the power of the land. And in so many instances, the indigenous people who, who continue to live there. And I, I believe that if we do not rise to the defense of these sacred lands, then we are all diminished. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Terry Tempest-Williams, and her book is The Hour of Land, about protecting American wilderness. Terry, you talk about humility. You mentioned that earlier, and I'll never forget the photograph of you in Canyonlands, so dwarfed by nature. 
And you talked also about solitude, and you talked about feeling like nature is watching us. These are experiences that when you spend your whole life in a city, you wouldn't even realize are an option. How can we make a point in our travels when we go to national parks to be impacted? What's your advice to get the most out of our experience? I remember my grandfather was saying, you know, I, I love wilderness. I don't love our species. We're ruining everything. I just want to go away, far, far away. And he said, okay, Terry, tell me your top three experiences in wild places. And I said, oh, well, when my mother and Mimi, my grandmother and I, were, were sipping water from Cascade Falls in Cascade Canyon in Jackson Hall. He goes, okay, that's one. Tell me another. And as I went through my litany, every single experience I had had was with members of family or people I loved. So I think we build these storied relationships to place, whether it's Grand Teton National Park, whether it's Arches National Park, Zion, or Acadia. So I think it's part of, I think, the beauty of wild places is that we share them with people we love. And in that shared experience, there is a generational solitude that can be held and found and revisited. And, you know, in Grand Teton National Park, that would be my mother park. You know, recently we were with my nieces and nephews. This is the fourth generation now who shares stories. Mm. And every fall we gather, you know, to listen to Elk Bugle. So I'm there with Stephen, you know, with Wyatt, with Letty. And I remember her great-grandmother, Letty. I remember, you know, my grandmother, Catherine, and Jack. And so conservation is a generational stance, and our national parks hold us in that place. There are some things that don't change in a changing world, and I think that offers us great solace. So that's one way to experience national parks, I think, with our families, generationally. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you know, I love nothing more than to watch and listen to a, a hermit thrush singing between intervals of thunder. It gives us courage. It gives us strength, again, to remember um, who we are and who we're not and how important it is to slow down and savor beauty, life, spirit. Speaking of spirit, Terry, tell me how immersing yourself in wilderness affects your spirituality and your relationship with God, if it does. I do find my spirituality in, in the land, hands on the earth. I remember who I am, what matters, what I choose to give my life to. Again, it goes back to that sense of awe, that sense of reverence. It's that paradox where at the same time we can feel very, very small and very, very large at once. We almost dissolve or merge into a heightened state of being. Mm -hmm. It's also about joy, you know, and focusing. I told a student recently at Dartmouth, you know, she was completely obsessed with the politics that were going on. She was cynical. She was upset. And she said, just give me an assignment, you know, anything so I can get my mind off this. And I said, I'm going to give you the same assignment that a South American shaman gave me years ago. I want you to go find some ants and watch them. And she looked at me and she just said, there's no ants on this campus. And I said, I don't know. I just saw her last night and she said, I found one hmm. and I followed it and I found where they live. I am so excited. You know, that's what the natural world affords us, and mm. it is everywhere. You've woven a lot of Native American culture into your writing, and 
you wrote about an Iroquois faith leader that, that talked about it's no longer about the color of our skin, but the color of our blood. You know, that was Oren Lyon, and I think it's a very radical statement, and it's a statement I believe, but it's also a statement that highlights white privilege, that highlights structures of racism that we are dealing with. I was just in a conversation with a student of mine from India, and he, he said, you know, Terry, but national parks are places of privilege. You know, how do you talk about that? Or how do you talk about, you know, how am I supposed to see these national parks when I can't even get there? And that's more than a fair question. And he said, I'll show you where my national park is on Dartmouth campus. It was this beautiful, shaded overhang of, of trees along the Connecticut River. And he talked about, you know, in India, where the concept of space is so different than we, we see here. I think we have to talk about race. I think we have to talk about inequalities and, and inherent structures of racism that we see not only in our colleges and universities, but in our government, in our states. And it's all part of this ongoing conversation, what I call the open space of democracy. And for me, public lands are our public commons and that they are open to all of us. And we have to figure out not how to review our national monuments and shrink them or rescind them, as President Trump has been trying to do with his executive order, but actually to see that we have more of them adjacent to urban landscapes and that we open up the process as Bears Ears National Monument has been opened to Native people so that five intertribal nations who do not have a history of agreeing have come together saying, Bears Ears is the home ground of our ancestors. This is where our ceremonies are, where our medicines are found, and where our prayers are held. And at any given moment, you can still hear the voices of our ancestors singing. This is what I think we have to celebrate. And then when you hear Oren Lyons say, it is no longer about the color of our skin, but the color of our blood, I hear Jonah Yellowman, who's a medicine person in the Diné, the Navajo Nation, who says, if we protect bear's ears, if we protect these lands, they will protect us. And that's where I believe these are inclusive and go beyond racism and privilege. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Terry Tempest Williams, her book, The Hour of Land. Terry, thank you so much for inspiring us to, to gain a better appreciation of who we are and the value of our wilderness. Thank you, Rick, and thank you for extending our sense of home. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton, Sarah McCormick, and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner. Special thanks to our colleagues at KGNU in Boulder, Colorado, and WFRD in Hanover, New Hampshire, for their help this week. Listen again whenever you like, and find out about our guests in the notes for each week's show. It's at ricksteves.com radio. Each year, Rick Steves Tour Guides take thousands of free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through Europe, one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from more than 40 different vacations in Europe's best destinations, from Ireland to Greece, and practically everywhere in between. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.